0: The History Channel original podcast
1: History this week September 24th 1902 I'm Sally Helm No kitchen stays perfectly clean for long not if it's being used You'll get a grease stain on the dish towel a sauce splatter on the countertop something blackened on the stove that can't be identified and can't be removed But this morning, for a moment at least, the kitchens at Boston's 30 Huntington Avenue are pristine. A new cooking school is set to start up there today. One journalist got a tour before it was officially open and reported that the rooms are light, sunny, the perfect blend of, quote, the ideal and the practical. They have a gas range, a coal range, a new ice chest, made of white tile and nickel with clear glass lining the inside. The journalist writes, optimistically, absolute cleanliness is perfectly possible with this cooler. Absolute cleanliness might be just a dream. After all, these rooms are about to be flooded with trainee cooks looking to learn things like how to bone meats and how to dust their pastry tops with powdered sugar. But the sense at this time is that if anyone can achieve perfection, if anyone can make an ideal Christmas goose and a flawless chocolate tart and still manage to keep the icebox clean, it would be the founder of this new school, a woman named Fanny Farmer. Farmer was known for giving energetic lectures in a long white apron with a chef's cap perched atop her red hair. She was an innovative cook, a pioneer in a thriving women's culinary movement known as domestic science. She'd long been a popular teacher at an established local institution, but now she's striking out on her own. Today, she's been called the mother of level measurements, and she changed recipes as we know them. Who was Fanny Farmer? And how did she shape the way we cook and eat today?
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
1: Boston, in the latter half of the 1800s, was an intellectual hub, home of Harvard and MIT. Its culture owed a lot to the Puritans. Upper-class people in the city described their way of life this way, plain living and high thinking.
3: Anything that was uh, sort of frivolous or, you know, just made purely for fun, was a little bit beneath their dignity.
1: That's the writer Laura Shapiro, who has written several books about food. She was actually born in Cambridge, just across the Charles River from Boston. And way back in the day, she told us, upper-class people in Boston and Cambridge had an odd kind of rivalry. Whose fancy parties had the worst, most boring food? Cantabrigians might say...
3: We had a a very bare-bones reception, which everybody loved, and it was way more bare-bones than they had over there where, you know, they actually gave them a piece of cake. Ah!
1: Shapiro told us all this came from the idea that if you were really refined, you didn't care about cookies and candies and frosting. The food you served your friends.
3: If you fed them at all, it would be on the plainest possible things you know, a glass of water, maybe a cup of bouillon, and then just listened to the high-level conversation that would swirl about...
1: Oh, a raucous time they were having in Boston. <laughs> Into this raucous culinary environment is born a redheaded baby who will eventually change cooking in America. Fanny Farmer is the eldest of four daughters in a Boston suburb. Her father is a printer.
3: You'd call it sort of an artisan's family, I guess. They didn't have a lot of money, but they valued education. It was a family of girls, and they all went to high school.
1: Shapiro said Fanny was considered the smartest of the bunch. She was expected to go on to college, someplace like Mount Holyoke, which trained women to become educated housewives or teachers. But one day when she's in high school, Farmer is supposed to meet up with a friend. and have their
3: tintypes taken which was an Mm -hmm. early sort of photography. And Fanny never showed up for the date because she had not been able to get out of bed that morning. her, Her legs had collapsed under her.
1: Today, it's widely believed that Farmer had polio. But at the time, her condition is mysterious. It leaves her bedridden for months and sick for years. She has to leave school. She eventually regains her ability to walk, but would have a limp for the rest of her life.
3: And... She was not going to easily get married. She could not go to college because she never finished high school. There were not a lot of jobs available for a woman like that. It kind of shut off all the possibilities for her future.
1: She relies on her parents while she's in her early 20s. And then she gets a job in Boston as a mother's helper, taking care of a little girl, helping out around the house, and doing some cooking. Meanwhile, around her in Boston women have been forming an entire cooking movement. It starts in the post-Civil War period with people like those upper-class Bostonians who wouldn't serve their friends a slice of cake. Some of them, and especially women, saw delicious food as unnecessary, maybe even immoral. And furthermore, they started to think of food as a tool of social uplift. Rich, reform minded city women of the time wanted to address what they saw as the urban evils of prostitution and alcoholism.
3: They had this uh, firm belief, really a firm belief, that good food would kind of cure drunkenness. Good food would erase the urge to drink.
1: It's this belief that leads well off philanthropists to fund a new institution in the great city of Boston, the Boston Cooking School. One of its goals at first is to help poor women, often immigrant women or women of color, by teaching them to cook healthful meals, which admittedly wasn't the most direct way to go about helping.
3: You didn't particularly want to raise their wages. That was not part of the picture. She wanted them to cook really well on a very small amount of money and create a healthy populace that would not become alcoholic. They wouldn't be sick. They'd be able to work more. And they would also be better people. They would be more Christian. They would be more white. They would be more American.
1: The idea was to help these women cook better food for their own families. But also, some of them happened to be employed as cooks in the households of rich Boston ladies. So this wasn't a wholly selfless act. And yet, at the same time, fewer and fewer women are taking those jobs as home cooks. The Boston Cooking School and others like it open their doors just as the whole domestic labor world is undergoing a big shift. We talked about all this with Danielle Dreilinger, who's the author of a new book about the history of home economics.
4: Due to the Industrial Revolution, the young women who would have been maids and housekeepers and cooks were choosing factory jobs instead, where the work was hard and repetitive, but at least you clocked in and you clocked out and it was regulated and standardized and you didn't have the problems of household employment where you might be at
1: your mistress's beck and call all day and all night. Fewer and fewer women wanted those jobs. And yet the Boston cooking school had largely set out to reach those women. So pretty soon into its run.
4: The school almost collapsed because it couldn't get enough business. And so they began reaching out instead
1: to the mistress of the household. Teaching the rich was more lucrative than teaching the poor. Plus, the mistress of the household might be in charge of the cooking for the first time in her life, and she might not know how to cook the lives of middle- and upper-class women had also been changed by industrialization. With the growth of cities and transportation, they might have moved away from their families. Maybe they went to public school rather than being at home all day. And for many, leaving home meant leaving the mothers who would traditionally have taught them the ways of the kitchen. And yet, Laura Shapiro told us, the expectation that women knew how to cook was written into American recipes themselves— They were typically short and vague.
3: So it would say, cut up your apples, add some sugar, and cook until done.
1: Some sugar. Until done. You were expected to just know what that meant. But this new generation of cooks did not.
3: If the recipe said, and then you add flour, you're going to go, what? How much flour? Well, your mother knows how much flour, but maybe you don't.
1: A recipe might call for butter the size of an egg.
3: You're supposed to know how big an egg is. I always think, you know, did they try
1: to shape the
3: butter into an (laughs) egg?
1: (laughs) These untrained home cooks had to fumble around in the dark. And you have to remember how
3: important it was to cook. Nobody was going to send out for pizza if dinner failed. On their watch, if the the meat boiled dry, the vegetables were undercooked and hard, if the sauce curdled, if the cake fell. It's on them. As a home cook, that is your profession. That's what you're supposed to be doing. If you failed, it is a personal failure.
1: Shapiro says cooking magazines were flooded with inquiries. Really, cries for help.
3: Why is my pie crust so tough? Why won't my cake rise? Why is this so heavy? And one woman actually wrapped up a piece of pound cake and
1: sent it just to a cooking teacher and said, what's wrong with this? The Boston Cooking School was there to help. And so was a growing movement of female cooks who started calling their trade domestic science. This is the late 1800s, when new technology is everywhere you look including in the kitchen. The calorie had just emerged as a unit of measurement. Mechanical egg beaters were on the market. There were gas stoves and ice boxes. And the domestic scientists saw food as their way into the science and tech boom.
3: Throw out mother's cooking. Use the new equipment. Clean and sanitize your kitchen down to the last drop of dust. Think about nutrition above all.
1: Not about taste.
3: They would sort of tap their foot impatiently while people enjoyed the food, but that was (laughs) not the point. (laughs) Instead, food is to build a healthy body, a healthy mind, and a healthy moral core.
1: And cooking could be a serious, meaningful, scientific job. Women could bring order to their domestic spheres, use their brains, and make their families healthier in the process. Would you describe the domestic science movement as a feminist movement?
3: In many ways, yes, because it was all about doing more. They wanted to use their minds. A lot of these domestic scientists who talked constantly about the joy of homemaking, did not marry. They traveled around teaching. They had great lives as independent women. (laughs) But it was so carefully bounded by propriety.
1: A woman's place for the domestic scientist was still in the kitchen. Danielle Dreilinger points out all this focus on making cooking a meaningful career might have had something to do with who was now responsible for it.
4: How much of it was about the fact that these Higher-class women were now having to do this work. And so there was an ego problem with doing work that you thought was drudgery, that you thought that immigrant women and women of color should, quote-unquote, be doing, and how much of the professionalization of the home was just
1: designed to make those women feel better about doing this. Still, Drylinger says, domestic science, which later came to be called home economics— was a way for some upper-class women to forge new paths for themselves. Contrary
4: to everybody's assumptions about home economics being a way to keep women barefoot and pregnant, basically, it was a movement aimed at
1: empowerment. One of the women who takes that aim and really runs with it is Fanny Farmer. So many avenues for her advancement have been closed off to her. But at age 31, she enrolls at the Boston Cooking School. And the domestic science movement completely changes her life. When she graduates in 1889, she's asked to stay on as assistant to the principal. And a few years later, when the principal retires, Farmer takes over as the head of the school herself. She
3: just was out there in this long, you know, shoulder-to-floor apron, just what the students wore, and a cap, and she showed exactly how to do things. And apparently, she really had the the personality of a great and charismatic teacher.
1: One account of a lesson she gave years later said, quote, it is safe to argue that one who does fail after having such an object lesson has a constitutional tendency to err whenever it is possible and should, for her family's sake, get someone more fortunately endowed to do her cooking. Basically, if Fanny Farmer can't teach you, no one can. According to a cousin, Farmer could constantly be heard asking, could this be improved? And at some point, It may have been back when she was a mother's helper, or maybe it was as a teacher. At some point, she has a big idea a way to make domestic science even more scientific.
3: She introduced really the great innovation in measuring, which was called level measurements. So that, and if you cook at home, you've done it a million times, you pile the flour into the cup and you smooth off the top with a knife. That's a level measurement.
1: A pretty straightforward concept, but that's not how people had been doing it.
3: They would say things like a rounded tablespoon. Well, when you have a rounded tablespoon, it means that you have the same volume on top of the tablespoon as in the bottom of the tablespoon. But, but this is nuts, and Fannie Farmer
1: saw that. For the home cooks struggling with their sunken cakes, level measurement was a revelation. And Farmer decided to make sure this idea would last by writing it down in a revamped version of the Boston Cooking School cookbook. This book will end up changing the way we read and write recipes. That's why culinary expert Anne Willen included Farmer in her book on the essential cookbook writers who
0: defined the way we eat. There is no way one could write about the background and history of American cooking without Fanny Farmer. Before Farmer's Boston
1: Cooking School Cookbook, later renamed the Fanny Farmer Cookbook, recipes were
0: typically structured as running text, basically just a long paragraph. So you had literally to run your finger down the text. Pick out the ingredients and how much you needed, and then pick out, again, running your finger from top to bottom, as it were, what to do with them. But right at the top of Farmer's Recipe, you'd see a title, followed by... How many people it's going to serve. An ingredients list. In order of appearance in the recipe, with the quantities.
1: And a description of the steps to follow. Farmer may not have been the only person fiddling with new, clearer recipe layouts,
0: but... Fanny was the person who established the industry standard. When the
1: new and improved Boston Cooking School cookbook came out in 1896, it
0: was an instant success. Fanny was the go-to cookbook. So if you wanted to roast a chicken, you looked it up in Fanny the woman behind the book had become a domestic science
1: celebrity and a domestic science success story. She went
4: to cooking school. She became a professional cook. That was her career.
1: Danielle Dreilinger again.
4: She was a cookbook author. She was a media celebrity. She made a great living. She was famous. You know, what more would a home economist
1: ask for? But Fannie Farmer, the mother of level measurements Fanny Farmer was in some ways the prototypical domestic scientist. Rigorous, exacting, and successful. But if you read her cookbook a little closer, you can see that Farmer isn't just domestic science incarnate. Here's Laura Shapiro. She
3: didn't go into endless detail on the science of everything. You could tell this was not precisely where her heart was,
1: Instead, she's got a whole
3: world of recipes that the hardcore domestic scientists never dreamed of doing. She's showing how to decorate the salad, how to put the marshmallows where no marshmallow had ever been. And so it was the the pleasure that she
1: took in more fanciful food, I think that really communicated to her. There were hints of that interest in her version of the Boston Cooking School cookbook, like recipes for red and green mayonnaise and cinnamon cookies shaped like horseshoes. But she really embraced it in 1902. At the peak of the Boston Cooking School's financial success, Farmer announces she's striking out on her own she's going to found her own cooking school, Miss Farmer's School of Cookery. There, in bright, airy rooms with state-of-the-art ice chests, she starts experimenting with new recipes, new ingredients. And unlike the traditional sober domestic scientists, she actually cares about flavor. But she cares even more about fun. She teaches students how to cook a dish she called Flemish beauties, which apparently looked like fruit, but was actually cold, boiled eggs painted pink and stuck with cloves. She has a recipe for something she called canary salad. It was especially intended for sick patients who were in a hospital or recuperating at home.
3: You'd have Neufchatel cheese, which is a kind of cream cheese, and you would color it yellow, and you would make it into the shape of a little bird, and you would put peppercorns for the eyes, and you would place it next to a little bit of salad that you had on the plate. So that was a canary salad. And the sick person would exclaim with joy.
1: Sick room cookery was one of Farmer's specialties. Perhaps because she herself had spent time as a bedridden patient, she understood that it was important to make food feel delightful.
3: And they always hear how it's, it's nutritious, they can't digest this, they can't digest that, so you have to give this. Fanny had all that, but she also said right up front, you have to please your patient. Make it look attractive on the tray. Set it up prettily, and of course there could be a scientific reason for that. Their appetite would be stimulated. They would digest it more easily if uh, the saliva was running, that kind of thing, but... You just hear her saying, I've been there. I know what it's like. Make this nice for them.
1: Farmer's message resonated. She was even asked to lecture at Harvard Medical School on her sick room recipes. And her school is a huge success. Turns out, people did like fanciful food. They didn't just want an intellectual conversation and a cup of bullion. And meanwhile... The Boston cooking school can't go on without Fanny Farmer.
3: She walks out the door, the school collapses.
1: Within a year of Farmer's departure, the school is forced to turn over its lease and equipment to the newly founded Simmons College. Farmer keeps lecturing at her own school until about a week before her death in January 1915.
3: The last lecture, the one she didn't get to give because she had to go to the hospital, was on cakes and frosting. It's heartbreaking. Mm. She would have loved to give that lecture, and people would have adored to have it.
1: For home economics experts like Danielle Dreilinger, Fannie Farmer is something of an enigma. I personally think that cake is an important part of a balanced
4: diet. But if you're about teaching nutrition, you don't really need to be teaching about cake and frosting, I'm
1: guessing she epitomized a split in the movement itself.
4: This tension that's illustrated by Fannie Farmer and the rest of the early home economics movement continues to this day about what we should be teaching kids and grownups when it comes to cooking. Should it be fun? Should it be healthy? Should it be both?
1: Farmer didn't fit with the austere, nutrition-first vibe that the domestic scientists had cultivated. And people seemed to like that.
4: Her books were incredibly popular for a reason. Food serves a lot of purposes. It's not just meant to nourish you or to nourish you within your budget. Sometimes you need to make a dinner to impress somebody. Sometimes you want to make a dinner to seduce somebody. Sometimes you want to make a dinner to make yourself feel better.
1: By the time Fanny Farmer opened Miss Farmer's School of Cookery, domestic science had been intentionally renamed home economics by women who wanted to legitimize the study of cooking. They
4: envisioned home economics as a college-level course of study that was serious, that was about science, that was more than just
1: housekeeping. But... One article called Fanny Farmer's New School a housekeeper's paradise. Home economics would contend for years with this tension between perfecting the household and breaking out of it. In the end, though the movement was meant to open doors, it sort of boxed women in. It was okay
4: for women to study chemistry as long as they were studying the chemistry of beefsteak, basically.
1: Yet... Farmer herself was able to use home economics to forge an independent life as a businesswoman. When she died, more than half the value of her estate, worth almost $5.5 million in today's money, was made up of copyright funds from the Boston Cooking School cookbook. It is her lasting legacy to this day. It laid the groundwork for recipes as we know them and helped generations of cooks. Here's how Laura Shapiro put it.
3: The big thing that she did that did last was her view of cooking as a manageable, organized event that you could master. You could learn to do it. Follow these instructions. You will become a good cook. It's seen as a kind of boring, old-fashioned approach. And we're all supposed to just kind of wander into the kitchen and wave our hands around and come out with a lovely meal that we've made. But (laughs) you know what? But we're not all like that. Some of us really want very specific directions. So Fanny's legacy was to people like us, like me, I might say, I love <laughs> level measurements. I don't want to <laughs> guess. She, she made that possible.
1: In the end, it was level measurement, not farmer's fanciful green mayonnaise or canary salad that really changed American cooking. And maybe that makes sense. Because for all farmers' creativity, even Laura Shapiro says she wouldn't serve all farmers' wilder recipes today.
3: Oh, dear. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want to know Fanny Farmer. I want to have lunch with Fanny Farmer. I want to go to one of her classes. I do not want to eat the food.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our email address, at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. Special thanks today to our guests, Laura Shapiro, author of Perfection Salad, Danielle Dreilinger, author of The Secret History of Home Economics, and Anne Willen, author of Women in the Kitchen. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dixstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Seary. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.